Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. From the National Trust to our nation's trust in its politicians, it's been a rather up and down week for politics. Keir Starmer started the week talking about culture. Rishi Sunak wanted to start it talking on WhatsApp. The government has launched its own channel. But the Prime Minister's chat plans were overshadowed by a revolt in the House of Lords and an attempted revolution by one of his own MPs, while some of the UK's key economic and data institutions rose up to criticise the government for the way it uses evidence. This week has also seen the launch of the IFG's Whitehall Monitor, our annual data-based stock take of the UK civil service, how it has changed and performed over the past year and its priorities for the future. We'll explore its key findings. And that was just the second Whitehall-themed report we put out in the last seven days with our deep dive into the Treasury, finding plenty to be worried about, if not the same concerns that Liz Truss and her allies have grumbled about. More on that later too. Joining me today to discuss all this are Rhys Klein, Associate Director and one of the authors behind Whitehall Monitor and indeed the Treasury Report. Hello, Rhys. Hi, Hannah. Also here with me is IFG Senior Fellow Giles Wilkes. Hi, Giles. Hi there, Hannah. And I'm very pleased uh, that we are also joined in the studio by Jerry Scott, Senior Political Correspondent at The Times. Hello. Thanks very much for being here. So let's start with what has been another long and turbulent week in politics here in Westminster. Keir Starmer started the week defending one national institution, the National Trust, whereas Rishi Sunak found himself at the mercy of another, the House of Lords. By Tuesday evening, Sunak had become the victim of one of his colleagues trying to institute a change in the Conservative leadership. Jerry, let's start with the Clark coup. Is that what we call it? What on earth is going on in the Conservative Party? It's a big question. Do we do we have five days to discuss it? Because that might be how long that takes. Well, look, I think we can call it a coup of sorts because it's a bit of a quiet coup. Not everyone is saying this out loud, but there are people in the party that agree with Simon Clark. You know, regularly I spend my time talking to Tory MPs who will say, I'm sick of Rishi as Prime Minister. I think we should change the leader, but who else is there? And that's really the main problem that is kind of stopping anyone make the moves that we saw Simon Clark make this week. Because the reality of the situation is there have been so many changes in Tory leadership, so many new prime ministers. One, do the public have the stomach for it? And two, who is there left? And what has been the reaction in Westminster in the Conservative Party generally? Well, we saw a massive kind of pile on of Simon Clark actually pretty quickly. I, it seems like number 10 got a bit of a heads up. It was coming, had had the time to kind of rally the troops a bit. There were a lot of supportive tweets of the prime minister, even from people who are regularly quite critical of his policies, but they were supportive of him. You know, I've seen some leaks from that infamous Conservative MP WhatsApp group, which, you know, anyone that ever posts in there should know never stays private. Um I mean, it's just, a, it's just a distribution channel, isn't it? It really? absolutely is. And, you know, people have told me before they post in there specifically because they know it's going to make its way <laughs> into the newspapers. But we saw people rowing in behind, behind it and they're saying, you know, we need to be united, we unite or die. So you didn't have many others coming out publicly to back him. But like I say, the grumblings are there. It's not like everyone thinks Vishy Sunak is some kind of political genius who is going to lead the party to success at the election. But a lot of people are now really resigned to the fact that they're probably going to lose anyway. So that was the politics that Rishi Sunak could probably have done without this week. We also had the House of Lords voting on the Rwanda Treaty. The complexity here is that this is the question of the new treaty that the UK has struck with Rwanda, replacing the Memorandum of Understanding. We had previously putting essentially many of the same agreements onto a legal footing. Parliament 
gets to express its opinion on treaties, but really generally has very little say over the treaties that we enter into, because that's a prerogative of the of the government. And Parliament neither gets to sort of do as some countries, Parliaments do, and set parameters around a negotiation of a treaty before it starts, nor does it get to sign off a treaty at the end. What the House of Lords got to do this week was to say, actually, we don't think we should ratify this treaty, although that has absolutely no effect on it, on the government's ability to do so. Perhaps the significance then, Jerry, is actually in what it tells us about the attitude the House of Lords may take to the bill, the piece of legislation around Rwanda that the government's trying to pass. I think it's more of a signifier. I think you're dead right. I think, like you say, there was no binding effect. The government could quite easily go, no thanks, don't care, don't have to listen to what you say. But it does indicate that when the bill gets there, it's not going to get an easy ride. You know, we expected this. We expected that the Lords are, you know, a little bit more concerned about you know, international agreements and upholding international standards and those kind of things, and they might not roll over quite so easily. But it's not clear that that would just be kind of an opposition party thing either from what we've seen this week. It doesn't feel like this is potentially party political. It's more just if you're a peer, you probably respect institutions a little bit more than you might if you're an MP. So I think you're right, it's a signifier. And I think number 10 should probably be worried about the rough ride it's going to get. And look, eventually, does it really matter? Will they probably get it through anyway? Yes, but it's how long that takes and how much of a damaging exercise that is in the meantime. Yeah, I mean, you do wonder whether Rishi Sunak regrets embarking on it in some ways. He's not going to get it out of the headlines between now and the end of the year and some of the views that his opponents within his own party have expressed on it and not doing him any favours. Giles, to add to Sunak's headaches, we've seen another poll in the Telegraph following on from the YouGov poll last week, which seemed to paint a pretty stark picture of the Conservatives' prospects. What do you make of all this polling? Well, it's uh, it's devastating for Rishi Sunak to learn that when set against a candidate who's got superhuman powers and can fix everything by Christmas, Conservative voters wouldn't prefer him. Or rather, the superhuman character can swap Keir Starmer aside and why isn't Rishi doing it already? I think the, mo- the more devastating thing to be serious is the revelation that the Telegraph is now such an enemy of the Prime Minister that it's willing to do things of such crass stupidity that they would damage the reputation of many other newspapers. It's astonishing that such a naive idea as to poll the leader of the opposition against an imaginary candidate to show up the Prime Minister is what they regard as a weapon. And it's like it's like when somebody's like shouting incoherent insults at you in the street. It's still slightly disturbing that somebody would like to, even if they are also incoherent. So I don't think there's any particular surprise anymore amongst Conservatives that they're facing a loss. I think what's really interesting for me as a sort of a data election modelling geek is where roughly the arena is. Normally, you would expect a governing party with about 350 seats to be saying, well, can we protect the ones from 250 to 350 and put our resources and our imagination in there? If it's really the case, as the polls have suggested, that the Conservatives are stuck around 26 27%, then the arena is about 150 seats below that. And it means their emphasis and what they're actually playing for is very, very different, which is A, incredibly depressing for the people who are just an absolute dead loss. But B means they've got really difficult allocation decisions. What if the place they should be thinking about putting their resources is where they're currently leading Labour by 15 or 20 points in a, in a seat? That's really awkward to do. So I'm not surprised that this polling information is really rattling the Conservatives because it suggests not only a loss, but one that might 
fundamentally change the party and the shape of politics for a decade. So in a sense, it's a very rational panic. Jerry, what did you make of the Telegraph's approach? Well, I thought what was fascinating from the second poll with the, yes, imaginary perfect prime minister was that under that, Keir Starmer still got like a hundred and something seats. Like people were still like, oh, this there's, we can have this amazing unicorn person that can fix all our issues. I don't believe it. I'll still go with Starmer. Um, so that was quite interesting. You know, I agree that the party is right to be rattled by these polls. I mean, you know it's bad when you're standing outside the 1922 committee the day that that first poll came out and people are turning up with their own scraps of paper where they've done their own kind of back of a fag packet calculations, have, you know, anecdotes from the doors and stuff like that. That indicates a very, very worried parliamentary party in my view and you know the message at that meeting was unite or die and clearly for some of them they came out and thought well right might as well die then um <laughs> and that's kind of where we've got to so you know the, you can't change the numbers of the polls the, the, the numbers are the numbers that doesn't change in whatever paper they're in but i think the framing of them like with that second one like with the imaginary prime minister is yeah it's pretty for the birds isn't it and reese amidst all this do you think the Prime Minister will have cared that he was reprimanded by the ONS for his use of statistics? Yeah, I, th- I think a letter from the chair of the UK Statistics Authority should be what's keeping the Prime Minister up at night, obviously. No, this I is, totally agree. This is uh, referring to Sir Robert Choate's adjudicating on the complaints about the Prime Minister's tweet from the start of the year where he came to clear the backlog, despite the fact that there are nearly 100,000 cases still in the backlog and he's still got about 4,500 cases of the legacy cohort that he promised to clear yet to be cleared. No, I don't think this is going to be keeping the Prime Minister up at night, although it is is a symptom of what will be worrying him, which is the backlog is not a problem that's gone away. It is still there. We're still going to see stories about how there's a stubborn cohort of cases waiting to be cleared, about how that's costing money in hotel bills and controversial arguments over local sites and so on. So the, the letter won't be a worry, but I think what it's a symptom of will be. And I think, you know, it's fair to say that at the Institute of Government, we've, we've noticed a bit of an uptick in the number of these letters from the ONS. Does that reflect a change in what politicians are willing to say or a change in attitude from the ONS? Maybe both. I mean, it was interesting at the annual conference earlier in the week, we were talking about this and a good point that was brought up by the panel was that this tweet didn't exist on its own terms for very long, that it quickly, the story became a debate about its veracity and briefings from different parts of the civil service and the media. So hopefully we see both a kind of awareness of the problem and admittedly in an election year, maybe a more willingness to play with reasonable tweets. Jerry, let's turn to Starmer. What was he trying to do with his speech back at the beginning of the week? And do you think it will work? It's fascinating. I found this speech absolutely fascinating because Starmer and the modern Labour Party have tried to stay out of culture war issues as much as they possibly can. Frankly, because they know for some voters they haven't been on the right ground on it. But I think what we saw him do in this speech is try and take ownership of a place where he is comfortable to have that fight. You know, he might not be as comfortable to do it on, say, trans issues or something like that, but the National Trust is somewhere that he can kind of take that fight to the Tories. And actually, we know this is part of a bit of a strategy by Labour. They're looking at... Um, I wrote a piece earlier, um, I was going to say earlier this year, it's 2024, I wrote a piece last year about this group called the National Trusters, this voter group that has been identified as being really kind of prime voting ground, not just for Labour, but for the Tories and the Lib Dems as well. People who have National Trust memberships or, you know, Historic England or one of these groups that you can go and walk around the countryside at the weekend. 
and they don't know where they're going to vote. So it's a real prime place to kind of target. I think that's what he was doing. I think it was mildly successful in terms of coverage, in terms of headlines. I think if you drill down to go back to the veracity point in an election year, some of it wasn't quite right, kind of to say that there were attacks from the government on the RNLI, not quite correct as far as I'm aware. Um, Maybe some individual Tory MPs, but not the government. So I think he has to be a little bit careful there as we head to the election to make sure there aren't any kind of chinks in his armour where people can go, that's not actually true though, is it? Yeah, and one of the other themes that was really strong in our conference earlier this week was this idea about politicians being honest and that just being not something that you can assert, not something that you can just claim that you're going to lead a government of integrity and uh, honesty and so on, unless you actually then demonstrate it rigorously day in, day out. Okay, well, let's turn from one national institution to another. This week also marked the launch of our Whitehall Monitor Report, which is our flagship review of the civil service, which we publish annually. Rhys, give us a flavour. What should government and those considering getting into government understand about the state of and trends in the civil service over the last year? So I I think the key message from our Whitehall Monitor this year is that As we approach the end of the Parliament, there are a combination of quite stubborn, deep-rooted workforce problems that have gone unresolved for a very long time, but which we're increasingly seeing the harmful consequences of in government. So churn is one. I mean, we've spoken about this for a long time at the Institute. It is at really high levels still, about 9% of civil servants leaving the civil service entirely each year. And that's partly a consequence of another, which is low morale that we're seeing continue to be a problem. That in turn is partly a consequence of yet another problem, which is the impact of real terms pay cuts on the civil service. I think less than a third of civil servants are now satisfied with their pay. They've had huge real terms cuts over the last decade or so, more obviously than comparative private sector roles, but also more than most public sector roles. That's really harming the civil service's ability to keep hold of top talent and recruit people in the first place. And you know, on top of all of that, we've seen an increase in Whitehall spend on private sector consultancy, and at the same time that the government is pursuing another incarnation of a, a sort of arbitrary historical headcount target for civil service cuts. So essentially, our argument in response to all of those problems is that we recognise this is never going to be a really sexy election-winning issue. It's never going to be front and centre of an election campaign, but it does really affect government's ability to deliver their priorities. So whoever's in power after the forthcoming election with a full parliamentary term ahead of them really should be thinking, what do I need to do to get to grips with these problems and put in place the sorts of reforms that have not been attempted in in recent years? Yeah, I mean, I think we think, don't we, that too often it's seen as a sort of optional extra that we can't quite get to. And actually, it underpins everything you're trying to do. So in a sort of situation that we're in of such difficulty economically, we almost can't afford not to address some of these civil service problems. Absolutely. And it's it's too often the one that falls off when a crisis strikes. As we saw with the declaration and government reform a couple of years ago, it was a really thoughtful piece of civil service reform planning from the Cabinet Office and Michael Gove, but ultimately momentum sort of ebbed away quite quickly. It needs to underpin the wider reforms if your priorities are going to be delivered. 
Yes, and we were very pleased to have John Glenn, the minister who oversees all this stuff in the Cabinet Office, speaking at our conference earlier this week. Here's a taste of what he said. Tech and artificial intelligence are not a one-size-fits-all solution to our issues. I believe there is a lot we can do by simplifying our processes. Inevitably, the government is and always will be a complex organisation. But I fear that now it's more complex than it needs to be. Complex processes hide inefficiencies. Simplifying how we work will make the civil service more productive. Rhys, what did you make of what John Glenn told us earlier this week? I thought there were a few things that jumped out to me. First, there were well-trailed comments on diversity and inclusion and the work of the civil service on this, on diversity and inclusion activity, particularly staff networks. It was interesting that these were briefed to the Telegraph over the weekend and presented in quite a culture wars angle about woke civil servants and so on, but were not presented like that in the speech. And actually what John Glenn said was, we're doing a review of the guidance on this and it'll come shortly. So devil's in the detail. But what I think it's pertinent to say is that that will be seen with some suspicion in the civil service because John Glenn was very keen to stress that he didn't see it as a culture wars issue. But if it looks like a culture wars issue and it smells like a culture wars issue, you know, what's the, is it or not? Second... John Glenn was very interesting when it came to the problems of recruitment, retention and pay. He really echoed some of our messages there about the interconnected problems and how they affect the expertise of the civil service. That was really welcome. Our warning on that would be, of course, you do need the money to be able to back up pay reform. So quite how much he thinks he can do in the limited time he has available and with the limited budget he has available, uh, I'm not sure. And thirdly, uh, the, the most interesting thing, I think, was his comments on civil service efficiency. And, you know, in one sense, that's not very interesting because who's against civil servants, civil service efficiency? But you, Hannah, put to him in the questions the slight contradiction between, on the one hand, wanting the civil service to be as efficient as possible to deliver the government's priorities, but on the other hand, Jeremy Hunt's headcount target, which essentially puts across the proposition that the civil service happened to be the right size in the months before the pandemic, that it needs to be nearly a decade later at the end of the next spending review. And I thought... John Glenn got himself in a bit of a muddle over that and there is a bit of an inconsistency between those positions that the Cabinet Office and Treasury will need to iron out to have clear messaging moving forward. Joe, do you think this close to an election is a bit optimistic for, for us to think that the government is going to be really getting into civil service reform? Uh, yes. Uh, next question. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I think there's a bit of a contact with reality thing here, isn't there, where, you know, I, I watched the speech and I thought... All of this sounds like it's mildly sensible. If you talk about, you know, having a smaller civil service that is more skilled and better paid, well, that sounds okay as a kind of baseline theme, but there's no time, there's no money, and the kind of workload isn't going to get less, right? So when John Glenn says, obviously, the civil service had to expand for the pandemic, obviously, it had to expand for Brexit. Well, the country is facing serious problems with like big policy issues i mean look at you know we were talking about the rwanda scheme and small boats issue earlier already we've had questions about how that kind of thing is going to be delivered what kind of policies are going to be in place for that i just think it's absolutely impossible to do basically anything before the next election but then even if you look after the election labor's got this whole slate 
of things they're going to want to bring in. Their first 100 days are already packed with legislation that they're going to want to bring into into force. I just, I just think it's really unrealistic, if I'm honest. And I, I was really struck by the fact that the increase in the size of the civil service over the last year has been very much in those delivery roles around asylum and all those crunchy challenges that the government's trying to tackle. Yeah, exactly. It's not what the perception of how the civil service has changed is, which is maybe in mandarins, you know, men in pinstripe suits and so on. And that's why I think John Glenn was really right to point to the potential of change with technological advances in AI. But in the meantime, if it wants to hire people to clear the asylum backlog, that's going to change the size and shape of the civil service, which again is why workforce planning is so important rather than these sort of arbitrary headlines. Giles, what do you think the priorities of the civil service should be this year? Oh, goodness. It's really difficult. I mean, like I said at the, the, the conference ourselves, that all of the people facing an allocation decision are trying to fit a court into a pint pot. In terms of where they should put their priorities, I mean, I tend to deal with business policy. And I think my slightly counterintuitive view, the civil service has been doing pretty good work, but it's almost been operating in parallel to the government as a political entity. So there's lots of people putting out all sorts of little strategies or quite big strategies on things like advanced manufacturing or particular technologies and so on. But they don't have a political class that has got the bandwidth right now to provide the resources, to work with them at the political level, to go out and talk to business and so on. So I think in many ways, in my area, I don't think they need to do anything more than just start getting attention and working with a bunch of politicians, which they'll probably be able to do after after the election. Otherwise, I mean, I think somebody, probably some really clever think tank, needs to do some analysis on where public spending shortfalls are damaging, not just for what they're meant to achieve, but also in terms of how they're damaging the economy. I mean, the classic example is infrastructure, but I think, for example, planning resource. If there was a pro-productivity, pro-growth seat at the table and asking where we should sort of be putting more civil service resource. I'd say, can we identify some of those things where we've got like terrible backlogs purely because we just have underfunded the admin? And as I said, I would expect some of that to be in the planning area. And Giles, do you think Labour are much interested in this whole area of, of civil service reform and thinking about the capacity capability of the civil service? When one meets Labour people, they are, um, a colleague of mine made an observation recently that whereas the Corbyn manifesto like put everything out there, every time they came up with something, they stuck it straight out there, including like free broadband for everybody. This Labour party is taking the opposite line. They're saying the absolute minimum that they possibly can get away with in order not to give the Conservatives any kind of a target. So even going down to the question of civil service reform. Having said that, they do believe in institutions. They have proposed several, like a new state-owned energy company, Great British Energy, a sovereign wealth fund, revitalising or reincarnating the Industrial Strategy Council. So they do believe in solving some of the problems of political inconsistency and partiality with institutions. And I expect their first six months to be very much learning about how to create those but otherwise, no, I don't think I've detected very much interest in, you know, trying to change machinery of government. I think like David Cameron, in fact, in 2010, they might think the last thing I need is to spend the first year or two of my time back in government after a long time away reorganising the deck chairs. OK, well, let's 
turn now to one lecture in particular, one part of government that we've taken a particular interest in, and that is the Treasury. Giles, you and Rhys are the authors of a new IFG report into Treasury orthodoxy. What, for the non-economists here, do we mean by that? Well, the straw man that we attacked is the idea that the Treasury has a fixed set of very old-fashioned, inflexible beliefs that generally way against growth and doing good things or allowing politicians to change the world for the good. I mean, the classic sort of characterization of this is that they only really care about saving money in the short term, never great schemes to invest, to sort of change the economy, to to improve public services, to sort of boost growth and so forth. This was at a, This kind of accusation reached its zenith during the Conservative Party leadership election campaign of mid-2022, when everyone was saying how they would put the Treasury back in its box and in many cases try to force it to accept the case that unfunded tax cuts would boost the economy. Now, that was our starting point to knock over that straw man. But interviewing dozens and dozens of former and current Treasury insiders, we did pick up a picture of a very strong and powerful institution with some important orthodox beliefs, not the ones that you'd be particularly surprised to hear about. You know, they believe in sound money. They believe in spending control. They believe that you should be sceptical towards ideas that question the efficiency of the free market and so on. But we didn't really find any real evidence that the Treasury dominates the politicians. The politicians get to choose how to wield this tool and they get to influence this orthodoxy. Like the new Labour politicians in particular, who came in in 97, gave it a whole new set of responsibilities and interests, which it grasped eagerly in the end. So the inflexibility through time isn't a problem, but the amount of power and influence and insularity of the institution is, in our view. The fact that it's pretty much the only place in government that can act without constraint from the rest of government is a serious issue. So there are lots of sort of conclusions and some recommendations about how to address this, how to deal in particular with the problem of the Treasury driving very short-term behaviour, these twice-yearly budgets. But then we keep coming back to the politicians. We wouldn't have twice-yearly budgets if the Chancellor, to whom the Treasury is so very responsive, wasn't constantly asking for new ideas to become more popular. To have his or her moment in the sun. Maybe we'll have a female Chancellor at some point. So, Reese, this paper really isn't a defence of the Treasury. No, I mean, as Giles said, we we sort of knocked down the straw man of the orthodoxy as it exists as a set of beliefs. But where we are more uh, critical, I think, often is how we found that orthodoxy is applied in practice. So Giles referenced short termism, and that's you know principally a political problem, but it is also an issue of how the Treasury enacts its public spending processes across government. We look also at criticisms from other parts of government the treasury is too simplistic in its its sort of application of economic analysis as it pertains to departments bids that it can sometimes be too ready to micromanage departments in their handling of public money for example and we find varying levels of legitimacy in those sorts of critiques but as giles started with there 
those issues would be much less important if it weren't for the overarching problem, which is the unique power of the Treasury and government and the lack of counterbalance. We were particularly concerned about how that manifests when it comes to the setting of the government's overall strategy of how it translates its priorities into coherent policy and budgets across Whitehall. That is a topic we'll pick up again in our final report of the Institute's Commission on the Centre of Government next month. So we're hoping to specifically sort of zero in on that problem in particular. Looking at it from your perspective, do you think Jeremy Hunt feels like a Chancellor who wields too much power? No, but would ever would any Chancellor ever say, no, I have too much power, actually, have some of it back. <laughs> um, but look, the circumstances to which he came to be Chancellor do put him in a particularly powerful position, I think. You know, the fact that he was brought in to bring the country back from the edge, essentially, I think does put him in a position that does give him more status, more power, and maybe some MPs in certain parts of the Conservative Party listen to him more because of that. So I think... There is part of that, but from a kind of political standpoint and from junior ministers grumbling in the tea room or in strangers' bar of of an evening, there definitely is a perception, as you touched on there, that whatever they do, there is just absolutely no way they can do any of it without getting the Treasury on side, which is obviously true and is obviously smart in one way. But if you're talking about that PowerPoint, there is definitely a perception amongst especially junior ministers, that they think, well, this is the blockage to my brilliant plans that will change the country and make everything better. And do you see, if Labour won the next election and Rachel Reeves became Chancellor, do you see the likelihood of any changes in the way the Treasury might be run? I think we'll definitely see changes. I think, you know, if you if you listen to Rachel speak, I don't think we're going to see like massive overhaul or anything like that. But I think it goes back to that kind of respect for institutions point that we were talking about before. I think she speaks about that a lot. She's talked about her kind of value for money commission. It's not called that, but it basically does that. And I think we'll see some changes in that way. But, you know, like like Giles said, I, I don't think they're going to want to be concentrating on making big changes anytime soon. She set out her fiscal rules. That's what she's going to stick by. Um, and yeah, I think basically it'll be status quo. Okay, let's check in on one more national institution. This week, we also saw the head of the Office for Budget Responsibility, Richard Hughes, call the government's spending plans last autumn a work of fiction and not even a well-written one. And this is a point I actually had already made in my own insight piece from earlier in the week. Giles, do you think we're seeing a, a bolder OBR than we have in the past? Yes, definitely. And I think we almost have like a scientific experiment improving this because in 2013 to 15, the then Conservative-led coalition published fiscal figures that were also totally non-credible. I mean, I can even remember what they were. They were suggesting that we could use departmental spending of $280 billion in the year 2018, when we'd been going through austerity and using about 310 by the end of sort of 2014. So they were suggesting, oh, we've done all of that, and now we're going to find another 30. And everyone knew it wasn't possible if you just work through the numbers from the bottom up and what the NHS needs and the MOD needs and so forth. You could see that they were implying that we were going to cut another 60 or 70 percent off everything else. It was ridiculous. But as a result of those figures, the OBR was able to print documents that showed the government eliminating the deficit, which is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And at the time I was fulminating and talking to the occasional journalist in anger about this. And nobody really picked it up. And the OBR kind of tutted and put opaque language in various reports saying, we're not sure that this is credible. But they didn't really say anything even 
like that um, sort of clear and nobody really picked it up because most people sort of accepted the narrative austerity is important and dealing with debt's important and um, this time round everybody is much more assertive and the media is picking it up very much so there was a column from David Smith in the Times yesterday for example saying these numbers are not credible but everybody is making the same point the IFS's report out today as well so I think we're in a very different world the OBR is kind of reflecting that but I think taking the lead and it's bravo I mean even though everyone the the normal rule is well tax policy is a technocratic issue that we can evaluate and work out how it's going to happen where spending is a political one and we should stay clear of it it's clearly reasonable to say, are these spending totals realistic on the basis of what we've seen in the past? And they're absolutely not. They're 30 or 40 billion pounds short, I suspect. And ignoring this is probably the most important factor in the in the coming uh, the coming election campaign. And it's a rather dismaying prospect we face because we need to discuss how we're going to deal with this. Jerry, what do you think the responsibility is of the media to engage with these sorts of questions ahead of the election but I guess also ahead of the budget. Yeah I think it's particularly important especially this year and I grow Giles I'm glad that it's kind of being picked up more than it has been and like who can blame the OBR for being more assertive right they've been the bogeyman over the last couple of years the punch bag for a lot of politicians who have said these are the guys who are messing it all up so I can't blame them for wanting to put the jigs up a bit and and have a bit of a fight about it but yeah look I think it's really important we've talked about veracity today we've talked about the importance of truth from politicians I think you know truth in terms of financial projections and things like that is going to be so important and You know, I keep going back to Labour, but it's because they're probably going to be the next government. They know they're not going to have much money to spend. But this is why they're so, so cautious on making any spending commitments, right? Because can you trust any of the figures? They're not sure. And from the point of view of the government, lots and lots of telegraphing of possible tax cuts to come in the budget. But uh, Giles referenced there the IFS report. From the government's point of view, ahead of the budget... Presumably, the debate we should all be having is is the fact that they're very well telegraphed tax cuts they intend to make are a choice to do that rather than spend the headroom that they expect to have on public services. Yeah, the polling's really interesting on this, isn't it? I keep seeing it over and over again that when the public are asked if there was extra money, where would you like it spent? And over and over again, they're saying on public services. They're not saying give me a tax cut. And look, I'm not saying that voters wouldn't say, yeah, great, of course I want a tax cut. I'm being taxed, you know, the highest rate for however many years it's been. But they also see crumbling public services. They see that they can't get a doctor's appointment. They can't get a dentist for their child within, you know, a hundred mile radius that public transport is awful. You know, there are multiple things that people are experiencing. And So I used to work for the Yorkshire Post and I worked for the Yorkshire Post in Westminster during the 2019 election when all those levelling up promises were made. And at the time we were saying the proof in the pudding of this will be do people feel better off next election? And essentially, no, they don't. And they can see that this is because of, you know, spending cuts in public services. So when you have to choose between the two, I think the reality of people's everyday lives hits a bit more than kind of the number on their payslip. And Giles, another reference to the IFS, but they always talk, or they have been talking about how chancellors always spend headroom when they get gifted it by the ABR. And that sort of creates a a ratchet effect. Does this show that sort of the fiscal rules can actually end up being quite counterproductive in that sense? Yes. I mean, I think it's important to have fiscal rules. They're 
needs to be a budget constraint on the government. The government, I mean, the Treasury needs it to be able to talk to departments. You can't say to one, you can't have your spending bid if, unless it's implying there's a limited pot of some kind and some rule against it. But the way we've set these ones up does encourage exactly what you say there, that people go straight up to the limit. And as you say, it's kind of a, a ratchet. If we then go over it, there's sort of emergency measures needed. If we go under it, then they, they spend it again. So I do think that some of our excellent colleagues, and we should give a shout out to Ollie Bartram, who's the third writer on the Treasury report that we published last week, are putting in some really important thinking on how you would design the fiscal rules in such a way that it's not possible to get away with doing this. And in particular, not possible to get away with relying on spending cuts that you haven't specified in any way whatsoever. Because otherwise, yeah, the rules that were meant to be a way of enforcing honesty on politicians will be acting as a catalyst for its opposite. That really did seem to be the thing that was frustrating the head of the ABR this week, I thought. And that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. I have to say we're recording this on uh, Burns Night. And for those of you who could hear the strains of a bagpipe in the background, uh, that's uh, the uh, kind contribution to the podcast from Marble House Next Door. Hope you've enjoyed that. But in the meantime, thank you to Rhys Klein, Giles Wilkes, and especially to Joey Scott. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you all for listening to this podcast. You can find all our podcasts, including The Expert Factor, which we record every week with the IFS and UK Interchange in Europe at Acast, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. We recorded a special live episode of The Expert Factor with guest Adam Fleming of the BBC's Newscast podcast at this week's annual IFG conference, so do give that a listen. Remember to head to our website for all our work, including all of the Whitehall Monitor data and analysis, our Treasury Orthodoxy report as well. And you can watch back all the action from our Government 2024 conference, which featured John Glenn, Nick Thomas-Simmons, Kwasi Kwarteng, Georgia Gould, Anita Boating, Giles Reese, and many others. Until next week, have a great weekend, everyone.